All right, take your Bibles, turn me to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, today's message is called Holy Diet. Holy Diet. All right, we are, we are coming across a new section. All right, we're coming across a new section in Leviticus, uh, a section where we're going to be dealing with clean and unclean laws. All right, so if you guys, if you guys remember ever talking about clean and unclean, you know, what's considered clean, what's not considered clean. Um, and, you know, when we, in this section of Leviticus, if you ever read through this book, Christians have a lot of questions about this section. Like, why are these things clean? Why are they unclean? Right? And there's, there's all sorts of interpretations, all sorts of explanations. And really what it comes down to, the main question that people ask about this section is why? Like, why are these things that are declared as unclean, unclean? What makes them unclean? And what makes things clean? And really the question that we need to be asking ourselves is what does it mean to be clean? And what does it mean to be holy? Because the being clean, being unclean has relationship to what it means to be holy. There are several things that we have to keep in mind as we go through this next section. And we will be in this next section for the next month or so. Uh, the session will last from chapter 11 to chapter 15. Uh, so I want to help us frame how to understand this next section. Uh, you know, if you ever read through this section and you see the laws, right? The, the section we'll cover today is the dietary laws. So what's the food that are considered clean and unclean? After that, we're going to talk about purification after childbirth. Then we're going to talk about leprosy uh, and other illnesses. Um, and then we're talking about uh, bodily discharges. So we're getting to some weird topics here. So really strange topics. But I want us to remember that these laws are being framed by a narrative, right? Leviticus contains a narrative. It's not often that we, we read a narrative, but there is a narrative because Leviticus is part of the, of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, which is a narrative, right? So a narrative frames these laws that we're going to be reading. And I want us to remember where we left off in our narrative because last time in chapter 10, we actually saw the continuation of this narrative. Last time we saw that two sons of Aaron were killed by the Lord for offering strange fire. And so Aaron, the high priest, they were left wondering this question. Are we as high priests still worthy of entering into the presence of God? In other words, are we clean enough? Are we holy enough? And so the clean and unclean laws that, are, that God's going to be giving here to both Moses and Aaron is to help Aaron, the high priest in Israel, learn what it means to be God's holy people. The second thing I want you guys to remember as we're going through this section is that what is unclean is not necessary sin. Right? It's not necessary sin. If you touch something that's unclean and you're considered unclean, it doesn't necessarily mean you sinned. All right? I want us to keep that in mind. Uh, here's a diagram to kind of help us understand uh, the difference between clean and unclean. And it's, I, I pulled this off the internet. It's not the most, not my perfect diagram, if I, if I had time to draw it out, I would have drawn, drawn, drawn it out. Uh, look back with me at Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, this is a commandment given to the high priest. This is, in a sense, the role of the high priest, the function of the high priest. One of their duties is to do this. It says here in Leviticus 10, verse 10, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. 
So what we see here is that there's a difference between what's holy, what is set apart, and what is common. And but what's within what's common, everything that's common, there's there's now a dis classification distinction between what is clean and unclean. And what I what what I want to see here is that as so common includes what's clean and unclean. When you become unclean, you have to go through a ritual to cleanse yourself. But every time there's a cleansing ritual happening, the language of the law, it doesn't, say, it doesn't include the language of you are forgiven because it's not necessarily sin. It just means you've been polluted, you're corrupted, you're unclean, you need to be cleansed, but you don't necessarily need to be forgiven. Versus the sacrifices that makes that consecration as holy, right? The sacrifices you read in the beginning, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, it has a language of you are now forgiven of your sins, right? And that's dealing with sin. So, so there's a difference here that's going on. It's important, us, it's important for us to remember that the clean and unclean laws, they are talking about cleansing. They're talking about pollution. They're talking about corruption. And therefore, there's no need for forgiveness because it's not considered sin. Um, however, sin does make you unclean, but not everything that is unclean is necessary sin. So just keep that in mind. The language of the, of the Bible does say that when you sin, you are considered unclean, but not everything that's unclean is considered sin. All right, that's the differentiation. Um, I will come back to this diagram as we continue through this, and I'll explain a little bit more of it. Um, but this is kind of a good understanding of the laws itself. Uh, one thing I do want to point out is that as we're getting closer to God, it is in a sense we're getting closer to what it means to live a life, to have life. Versus sin is what leads to death. And so death, in a sense, is something is unclean. It's, it's unnatural. It's not holy. And so when we sin and we go through this process of becoming, uh, becoming unclean, be, becoming polluted, we're getting closer to death versus when we are cleansing ourselves and consecrating ourselves, we're getting closer to actually the true life. Third, I want us to think about clean and unclean. In the Hebrew language, it is actually the same thing as we think about in, in the English language. Right? When we think about clean, we, talk, we think about, I don't know, like Mr. Clean. We think about, you know, clean bathrooms, soap, and bubbles, and, I don't know, we're, we're talking about doing, putting these into the dishwasher. We're talking about mopping and dusting. That's a language we think of when we think about clean and unclean. But that isn't necessarily the language here. We're not necessarily talking about what is dirty versus what is pristine. The idea here is actually closer to what is pure and what is corrupted. What is pure and what is corrupted. Let me give you a list of synonyms for clean and unclean. Right? The Hebrew word is tahor for, um, and for clean and for unclean is tameh. And these are some synonyms of how you can translate these Hebrew words. And I'll kind of give you an idea of where we're getting at when it comes to talking about these two classifications of the common realm. All right. So one way that we can think about, I think that's helpful for us to think about clean and unclean, is that what is clean is actually what's considered to be normal or natural versus what's unclean is actually considered to be abnormal or unnatural. The point is this. The cleaner you are, the closer you are, to God and to life and to the way he intends you for you to live versus the more unclean you are, the farther away you are from God. All right, that is really the whole point of it. Finally, as we, as we consider the section of the laws, I also want us to remember that the Old Testament deals 
specifically when God's holy people is specifically Israel, the nation Israel. And Leviticus is speaking to Israel. God is forming a new nation here. Therefore, these clean and unclean laws are, in a sense, defining Israel's culture, in a way. Right? I mean, we think about it, for instance. Every culture, even our culture today, we don't necessarily say they're clean or unclean, but we do have norms that speaks into this kind of language. Right? For instance, we will think, think something, we'll think some things are gross or some things are acceptable, some things are not. Right? An example is wearing shoes inside a house. Is that clean or unclean? Unclean. <laughs> but you see, that's, that, that's a cultural statement, right? That's a cultural statement there, right? It is not necessarily, like, what is it that actually makes it unclean, right? It, it's, 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 <laughs> hey, your feet can be just as dirty, all right? Um, and there, there's, there, there's, there's expectations around that, right? Different expectations of, of what you do. In, some cult, in, in other cultures around the world, there's, diff, there's different expectations of how many times you're to take a shower in a week, right? Not, there's some courses where you don't take showers every day. And, and that's acceptable, right? Body odor is acceptable in some cultures, all right? It might not be acceptable to us. We might think it's gross, but that's, again, it's, there's a cultural theme behind this, right? And as we're dealing with today, right, in chapter 11, we're going to deal with food, right? We're going to deal with animals, what's considered clean and unclean. Even if we consider diets around the world, foods, there are some foods that we consider gross, while other cultures consider totally acceptable, and vice versa, right? And so, in this, when we read these laws here, we might find them weird and strange, but understand that what's happening here is we're actually build, we're actually seeing and understanding Israel's culture, all right? And it's actually not too far, not too different from what we see in different cultural norms that we see today in different nations. Today we're covering chapter 11, and so we're talking about clean and unclean laws as it relates to animals, and we could call this the dietary laws of Israel, and because Israel is God's holy nation, we can call this a holy diet. All right. The structure of, our, of my message tonight is simple. We're going to talk about, we're going to first examine real quick what the law says. I'm not going to read through the whole thing of chapter 11, but we're going to see what it says. We're going to understand why the law exists. Then I'm going to jump to the New Testament and show you guys how Christ fulfills the law, and then how the principles of this law still applies to us today as New Testament Christians. So the first thing we're going to see here, all right, is the clean and unclean animal laws. I don't know if you guys read through this during the week um, or before, uh, but real quick, what we see here is that the laws here are divided in two sections. And what it deals with here is we're dealing with the animal kingdom. Right? We're dealing with the animal kingdom. And what the first thing we have to notice here as we, if you ever read through it, is that the animal kingdom here is being split up into categories similar to what we find in Genesis 1. Right? In Genesis 1, when God created the world, he differentiated, he said he created the things, the animals living in the water, the animals flying in the air, the animals who, who were on land, and he even talking about those creeping things, the swarming things, the insects. Right? And we see the same classification of animals here. Right? We see the land animals. Livestock, water animals, fish, flying animals, birds, swarming animals, insects. And the first set of laws from verses 1 to 23 deals with Israel's diets. Which of these animals are considered clean to eat? And so for the, for the land animals, in verse 3, if you look at there with me, 
Verse 3 it says, Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven footed and choose to cut among the animals, you may eat. So, what does it mean to part the hoof or, or is clo- cloven footed? Those two words are synonyms. What it means is that their foot is divided in half or into in t- two. So, they're like two toes in a sense. Right? They're two toes, and that's how they walk. They walk on these two toes' feet, right? Cross the right. Versus like five, fing- five toes or uh, paws. So we're not talking about, so we're talking about hoofs that are divided into two. Alright? So and then it says here that they're also so the end here is, you know, think about logic. It's not a, it's not or, so it's not either or, it's and. So they have to be all these things. So they have to be both, they have to part the hook, they have to be closed with it, and they have to chew the cud. What does it mean to chew the cud? It, it it means that they they they're vegetarian really. That's what it means. They they, they chew on grass or they chew on plants. They, and they chew on it really quickly. They, they digest it, maybe it regurgitated like cows, but whatever it is, they chew on cut. All right. So they, they, they're, they're, they're pastures. They're pasture feeding animals. All right. Uh, vegetarians. Um, and so what we see here is that that is, well, that those are the only animals that are allowed to eat. Right. And so therefore, and then, and then they go through specifics about what we're not allowed to eat. So, you know, the camel, uh, because it chews the cut, but does not part the hoof, unclean. Rock badger, uh, chews the cud but does not part the hoof, unclean. Talk about the pig, it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud because you know pigs just eat whatever, right? Um, and so they're unclean to you, and so so on. In verse nine, we now talk about water animals. <clears throat> water animals, and in verse nine we see here that everything says here these that you may eat of all that is in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales. Whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. So we may eat whatever has fin and scales, which means lobster and shrimp is not part of their Israel diets. All right, could be sad for you, some of you guys, but that's just the case. <laughs> no shellfish, no. If you if you have shellfish allergies, you're probably like, yeah, that's fine with me. <laughs> Keep in mind, Israel is actually not very close to the sea, so. Seafood actually is not a very big part of their diets in general. All right. uh, but when they do eat f- seafood, it is th- it's fish that has fins and scales. All right. All right. Verse 13 talks about the birds. And here the language changes a little bit. Instead of telling what they're allowed to eat, it just gives a list of birds that they're not allowed to eat. Now, I want you I guys to keep in mind, when you read a list like this, it is really the English translators trying to do their best to translate the Hebrew terms for different animals into what we think they are in English. But you know, this is, what, 4,000 years ago? Like, animals change. Immigration, climate, um, some of them may not be around as populated anymore. Um, also, the language itself is really just hard to translate. They have to figure out, you know, they're looking at the word, and they have to compare it to other outside sources. Of, of the Hebrew language using the same word and try to match the context, try to figure out exactly what animal this is. So when it says something like, um, when it says something like the eagle or the bearded vulture, the black vulture, it might not be an actual vulture. Like we, they, they're trying to do their best to interpret it. All right. In any case, what we see here about the birds is that they're talk, they're, they list all the birds that they are Israel's forbidden to eat. They're forbidden to eat. And mostly, commentators notice, most of these birds listed here are birds of prey. 
they're, they're ones that eat, they're carnivores, they eat rats, mice, and rodents, and bunnies, I don't know. Right, so these are, these are birds of prey that they're not allowed to eat. And the last thing they list here is the bat, which is interesting as a bird. In any case, these are animals that fly in the air. Um, and then we come to insects, right? It says all the winged insects that goes on all, in verse 20, all winged insects that goes on all fours are detestable for you. For many of us, you're probably like, amen. Insects are gross, right? Who eats insects? But wait, verse 21 says that, yet among the winged insects that goes on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet which, with which to hop on the ground. So, the insects that they're allowed to eat are grasshoppers and locusts, all right? Those who have winged, you know, you imagine their, their legs being, being up. Hmm? Crickets, yeah. So whatever they use to, to hop, on the, hop on the ground, um, they have these joint, jointed legs that, that rise above their feet. All right, so those insects are allowable. So, you know, if, I don't know how many guys have ever eaten grasshoppers or crickets. Um, they, are, they tend to be very crunchy, um, but not much taste. Um, but yeah, those are allowed in Israel, all right? Okay, that's that. Let me go through the second set of laws. So starting in verse 24, all the way to verse 40, <clears throat> verse 44, we are dealing now with, can, are we allowed to touch these animals? And touching dead animals, this is important, this is important for Israel because a majority of Israel are shepherds. They deal with dead animals all the time. So what do they do with them, right? Remember, death is closely related with sin. And so when you're dealing with death, you have to understand God cares about this because God is a God of life. The regulations can be summed up in this way. First, it's really only the dead animals that are considered unclean to touch, all right? Only really the dead animals are clean. So if you're talking about a live animal, for instance, like a pig, Israelites are allowed to touch a pig. That's fine. They're just not allowed to eat it. But they cannot, but it's, but the dead animals, all dead animals, is when they're dead, that's when they're considered unclean. All right? <clears throat> considered unclean. So we're dealing here with dead animals. You notice this language in verse 24. It says, by these, you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass, meaning their dead flesh, their carcass, shall be unclean until the evening. The second thing we notice here, and these laws, is that all dead animals are considered unclean unless they were killed for religious purpose or for eating. So even the clean animals, right, the bulls, the oxen, if they died of natural causes, they're unclean. You cannot touch them. They're only considered clean if you intentionally kill them for offerings, sacrifices, or to eat them as a meal with your family. Well, we see that in verse 39, right? Look at me there. It says, if any animal which you, which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. What it's saying here is, yeah, if it dies of natural causes, you cannot touch it. All right? So, <clears throat> we, and, and the reason behind all this, the reason behind all this, again, is because death is closely related to sin. And then the minute you, the minute you're associated with death, you become polluted, and you can't, you can't draw close to God. God is God's a God of life. And so that's why these, this, this is important. It's teaching Israel that death is unnatural to God's creation. Right? Death entered into this world because sin happened. 
Let us remember that. I think it's important for us to remember and for any of us, if we've ever dealt with any kind of death in our lives, whatever it's to the pet or a family member, it's a, you grieve over that because death is not natural. It's not what God intended to be part of this world. We are meant to live. We're meant to have life and the blessings of life. Right? Third, the uncleanness, the uncleanness caused by the dead animals lasts only until evening. So that is true for all of this. Right? They, they last until evening. It's, it's, uh, you see that, that term over and over, until the evening, until the evening, until the evening. So what that means is that your uncleanness is temporary. All right? it, it, it lasts only until the evening, but you still have to go, you still have to cleanse yourself. You still have to cleanse yourself of water, but then you're considered unclean until the evening time. All right? And then finally, last thing we see here is that any household articles, clothes, earthenware vessels, pieces of wood, any household article that touches dead carcasses, especially those of insects, are considered unclean and must be purified by water. Um, and it even tells us that those, if you find any like dead insects in your earthenware vessel, you shall break it and toss it. It's just considered contaminated and you can't even do anything about it. All right? So imagine if you find, I mean, <coughs> excuse me, we consider that to be true today, right? Imagine if you find like a dead lizard in, in your jar of flour. You're just, you're gonna toss out that whole thing, right? You're, you're not gonna just keep any of it, right? The whole thing's contaminated, right? So this, in a sense, this, this makes a lot of logical sense, right? All right, so that's what we see here with the laws. That's really a summary of the whole Leviticus chapter 11. And what we find in these laws, in these clean, unclean laws dealing with animals, what we see here is that this law, these laws impact our daily lives, impact Israel's daily lives. Right? Remember, imagine every day the Israelites, <coughs> as they gather together for a meal, they have to remember what's clean to eat and what's unclean. They have to check all their plates, all their bowls, for any dead insects or dead lizards. They have to kill the right animal to eat. Right? This is dealing with something that impacts them on a daily basis. Um, we'll, we'll get to the purpose behind these laws in a minute, but I, I want us to, to think about this. God set these laws for the Israelites, for Israel. In a sense, because God wants Israel to remember, to think about about God every single moment of their lives. That every day when they wake up and they're going through their daily routines, right? They're, they're taking care of their flock or they're cooking a meal for their family. Every single day in their daily routines, they're thinking about God and they're remembering Him. And He gives these laws to remind them, hey, you are my people. And they're reminded of that every single day. Everything that they say or do down to the very meal they eat they must submit all of that to the Lord. Now, what is the main purpose behind these laws? The main purpose behind these laws. Well, Christians for centuries have debated about this. Uh, you might, you guys yourselves might have heard some reasonings behind why these laws exist. Really, the question comes down to this: Why are these particular distinctions 
being made between clean and unclean animals, right? Why this distinction? Like, why care about, you know, the part of hook? Why care if they chew the cud? Why care about these, these fishes or these birds? I want to give you guys four common but unhelpful interpretations. All right. I, I want to talk about these because you guys might have heard them. First, there are some who consider these laws, I just saw four. First, I consider some of these laws to be arbitrary, meaning there's no known reason for them. God just gives them these laws as a test of their obedience, right? Saying, this is my word, just take it or leave it, all right? It's a test of their obedience. Some people say that. Really, what I, I think about that view is really the last resort view, right? I, 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 it's a last resort explanation, and I really find it unhelpful. Because I do think if we read Leviticus 11 in its context, we'll actually see a very good reason for why these laws exist. Second, some hold to a cultic explanation, right? An occultic view, which is that they, they see that the law is placed there to distinguish between these animals because the unclean animals are closely associated with pagan worship in the nations around Israel, right? And so... They, and so for Israel to, to stay away from those animals is really a mark of their fidelity to God and to their covenant with their Lord, right? And so Israel has to avoid these animals. However, this view doesn't hold much weight because many pagan religions around Israel actually also use the same animals that Israel used in their sacrifices, right? The bull, the oxen, their common animals actually being sacrificed outside of Israel. And so... Those animals aren't declared unclean. So that view actually doesn't hold much weight. So if you guys heard that, it's okay. But I just don't think it's actually a viable view. Third, a, a third way of people looking at this is that they see it as symbolic. Right? Symbolic interpretation. This is interesting, an interesting interpretation. Um, but I do find it too whimsical. All right? What they do with this is that they view these animals as living illustrations for how Israelite ought to behave. So for instance... If we know a pig, can you imagine a pig probably rolling around in the mud, right? Rolling around in filth. So they say that a pig represents the filth of iniquity, right? The filth of sin. And so therefore, don't associate yourself with a pig because they're just dirty. And in general, that represents sin. So don't associate with them, right? Don't behave like pigs, right? Don't be pigs, guys. On the other hand, they will take a view, the symbolic view will take something like chewing the cud, and he'll say the chewing the cud is, is symbolic of how Israel should meditate upon God's word. Should chew on it, digest it, redigest it, chew on it again, right? It, it represents how they should meditate on God's word. Again, this is it's, it's, I find this very whimsical, right? It, it, they're just they're just you kind of just take take a. You take an illustration, you just run away with it, however you want to symbolize it. And I, it's hard to really see where they come to their interpretation with these things, right? But again, if some people hold this view, you just, I don't know, you just kind of just like, all right. If it's, as long as it's not like a sinful, you know, uh, sinful view where it's like totally, hypo uh, totally um, just out there. Um, all right. I mean, you just show them why you believe, you know, the law should be how I'm going to teach you later on. Finally, the hygienic view. Some of you guys might have heard this. I even heard this from people within our church and or even from my own parents. <laughs> All right. The hygienic view is very common amongst modern day Christians. And but I also find this lack this this lacks much credibility. Alright. It argues that unclean animals are forbidden to be eaten because of personal health reasons. 
Pigs are dirty because they contain a lot of disease. Don't eat them. All right. Um, and and I get that a lot actually. You know from I, I get that a lot from from people like people. My I remember I think it's probably my my mom or something just telling me that I shouldn't eat I shouldn't eat shellfish too much because they contain a lot of cholesterol. It's not good for my health. You know I shouldn't shouldn't eat a lot of it. Right. And it's like did did didn't God tell Israel not to eat shellfish too? I'm like. Okay, you know, that's, so, so that's, that's how they're going to argue with me. Um, you know, like, yeah, so I, you know, so, so what, what, what they say, so the hygienic view sees the laws, and they're like, the clean animals, safe to eat, unclean animals, unsafe to eat. Now, okay, given all that, there's some partial truth to that, right? There's some partial truth that there are certain health reasons behind these animals. There's certain health things that we found out as modern science, you know, studying nutrients and, and all that. But God here isn't giving us, you know, like a nutrition value of these animals, right? That's not what's going on here. We're not reading labels and trying to figure out what's best for our bodies. First, I want us to think about this, that many of the clean animals, even listed here, could also carry dangerous diseases, right? One of the birds not listed here is a pigeon. I imagine that that would, you know, carry a lot of diseases. Many of these clean animals carry dangerous diseases. So why aren't they considered unclean? Second, many of the nations around Israel ate these animals and they never had huge health problems from eating these animals. Right? And, so, and so to have a health reason, we don't really even see that being played out in other nations around Israel. Third, if the hygiene, reason is really, if the hygiene view is really the reason for this law, then why did Jesus abolish it when he came? Why did he abolish it? I mean, you should care about our personal health if this is supposed to be truth that, you know, lasts for all animals for, for time. I mean, I know now we have, you know, better quality ways of raising livestock and stuff like that. But still, like back in Jesus' time, they didn't have those regulations. So why did he abolish it when he came? Right, so it, it, really, it really doesn't make sense if, that's, if this is truly the reason. So then how should we understand these laws? Look with me at verse 45 to 47. Scripture is the best place to help us find these kind of answers. Leviticus 11 verse 45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. This is the law about beasts and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every living creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. The purpose of these laws, <clears throat> the purpose of these laws is so that there's a distinction being made between the unclean and the clean. And why is it so important to make these distinctions? I want us to think about this. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy means you're being set apart, right? You're being set apart from what's common. In a sense, you're being made distinct from everything else. So on one hand, to make distinctions between all, between all the animal kingdom is what God does because God makes distinctions. Right? In creation. Right? In the creation account, when God created the world, He made distinctions between light and darkness, between land and sea. He made a distinction between 
all the animals, land animals, fishes, birds, insects. God made a distinction between animals and plants. He made a distinction between humans and animals. Humans being made in the image of God. And even furthermore, even within humanity, God makes a distinction between male and female. All of creation, all of creation lives under the order that God deems as good. God makes a distinction. Sin, then, on the other hand, is an agent of chaos. It seeks to disrupt God's order. Sin corrupts the line of distinction. It blurs everything up. Right? Sin mixes what is good with what is evil. And we see that in the world today, right? We see a lack of distinction happening today between humans and animals. We see confusion with genders. We see plants and nature being held to a higher regard than humanity. We see a battle between what is real and what is not. There's confusion happening because of sin. In a sense here, when we see these laws, these laws remind Israel that the world has been corrupted by sin, and thus they must redraw the lines of distinctions as God's special nation. Right? God chose Israel, and God said, now you're my chosen people. And remember, I, I believe Israel, in a sense, is supposed to be the new Eden. Through Israel, we're supposed to see God dwelling with His people and people living in righteousness, the light of the world from Israel shining out to the rest of the nations. This is the one nation in the world, New Eden, that will stand separate, distinct from all other nations because Israel is God's chosen people and thus they will also make a distinction in this world between what is clean and unclean. In other words, these laws serve to remind Israel daily that they are a holy people who serve a holy God. Every day, every time they prepare a food, they deal with livestock, their daily routine reminds them constantly that God is the one who chose them, God is the one who saved them, God is the one who redeemed them, and God is now the one, at this time of Leviticus, the one leading them into the promised land. Again, look with me. Verse 45, God reminds them, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. God saved them. God chose to save them. Israel is to be holy, distinct from the world, because God is holy. But even think about the context of how God chose Israel. God chose Israel. God chose to save Israel, not for any exact reasoning. right? Just like how there's no exact reasoning behind why this animal is considered clean and this animal is considered unclean, there is no exact reasoning behind why Israel is chosen to be God's holy nation before all other nations. You see, what we see here is that God chose to love Israel. He chose to say, hey, out of all the peoples in the world, you will be my people. I will be your God. And therefore, they are to remember that every single day of their lives, that they are God's people because of God's grace. You're God's people because of God's grace. And so when Israel follows these laws and he follows these dietary restrictions, Israel is reflecting upon God's holiness. They're reflecting and reminded 
that they are indeed set apart from this world. They are set apart from this world because they serve a God who is holy and who loves them and who chose them and saved them. It's really about God's grace here. Finally, practically speaking, right, what is holy should not be mixed with what is sinful. Right? What is clean should not be mixed with what is unclean. And practically speaking, when you think about dietary laws, right? You think about these things. Eating is such an important part of any culture. Right? All of us, I hope, love to eat, right? We we love to eat. Eat food is part of culture, right? When we think about, you know, dumplings. We think about Chinese culture or Taiwanese culture. I don't know, whatever you want to do. Uh, you think about you talk about sushi, you think about Japanese culture, right? And then you, you talk about mac and cheese, you go American and you know, whatever else. You know, you, this, today I had today I, I, I went with Josh to go get some Mexican food because it's seemed with a mile. Right? We connect it it could be uh, you know we do all this because there's association between food and culture, right? Food and culture. Food is where food is where fellowship and identity is established. Every culture has a cuisine, and Israel is no different. But imagine if Israel now sits at a dinner table with all these other nations. What are they going to do with the food? They probably can't touch most of the food that the other nations are serving. They they're the they're the one guest with their own takeout box, you know, eating their own food, right? Where is you see, it separates Israel. It separates Israel from all other nations, making it impossible for them to kind of mix it up with foreigners. It makes Israel distinct. In a way, it teaches Israel that you are indeed distinct. You should be unmixed with foreigners. That's what makes you holy and set apart. So practically speaking, even through that, God is teaching Israel what it means to be holy. Now, for us, and I'll try to wrap this up quickly. For us, as New Testament Christians, how do we think about this? Well, we, Christ fulfills the law. We know that, right? We don't, today, we don't live underneath these dietary restrictions. Thank God we don't. I remember I was, I was eating with my wife yesterday, and we had, the, we had the, the broccoli slaw from Costco. And I was picking up the bacon pieces. And I was like, I was telling my wife, I was like, thank God. That Christ came and fulfilled the law. Because I, <laughs> I want these bacon pieces. All right. Um, you know, so, so, you know, Christ fulfills the law and abolishes these restrictions. Now, let's, let's read a little bit about these so we can understand this better. Uh, first, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 9 to 16. In Acts chapter 10, verse 9 to 16, this is talking about Peter. And it says this. Peter went up uh, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the house salt about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and saw something like a great sheep descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, 
By no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the theme was taken up at once to heaven. We see here Peter receives a vision from God to kill and eat animals that were considered unclean in Leviticus. And Peter was confused by this vision. He was confused until immediately after this, the, the section we just read, Peter received word to, to visit the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And when Peter went, he found Cornelius and his household. Their hearts were eager to hear the gospel and to be saved. And at that time, that's where Peter realized that what used to distinguish Israel as God's people, it doesn't matter anymore. Because in Christ, salvation has been made available for all peoples of all nations. In other words, what marks God's people as distinct in the Old Testament is no longer in what they eat or touch. But what marks God's people as distinct is in their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what marks them as distinct. That's what makes people, us, the church, holy. Next, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 to 23. Here we have the words of Jesus. And he says this, And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that, came, that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it is expelled. And here's a little comment by Mark, explaining to us what, what Jesus is doing here. It says, Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, Jesus here is showing us that while the practice of the law no longer applies, the principle of the law, the heart of the law, still matters for us today. Jesus here, he's challenging the Pharisees and the Jews to not just obey the letter of the law, but to obey the heart of the law. Right? The, you see, the dietary restrictions, right, that we just read in Leviticus 11. Yes, the purpose to remind, they're, they're, to, they're to be practiced by the Israels, and they did. But remember the purpose. The purpose of these restrictions are to remind the Jews that they have been chosen and saved by God, not because of any righteousness they have, but because of God's, <coughs> excuse me, because of God's electing love. In other words, the Jewish people forgot that they were born sinful. They forgot they were born sinful. They, they, and so they, they forgot that they have to seek righteousness, not by their works, but by their faith in the Lord. You see, they were supposed to constantly go to God in repentance. 
That's the whole point of the law. It's the goal to go to God and repentance. Recognize your weakness. Recognize your sinfulness. Recognize your uncleanliness. Come before God. Be cleansed and forgiven by God. God is the one who can purify them. They're, they're to be reminded of just how sinful they are. And it's a reminder to all of us that we too are born sinners. That we too have a heart filled with evil. And that we too need to find forgiveness and righteousness in the grace of God. But we have something better than Israel. And we have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who through his death and resurrection has forgiven us. Not only has he forgiven us, but he's given us new hearts. The Holy Spirit regenerating us. Making us alive and born again. <coughs> Sorry, does anyone have a tissue? <laughs> I realized I didn't bring one with me. lesson that we learn from Mark. That while the dietary laws have been abolished, we are still to carry with us a daily reminder that we have been saved by grace alone. Meaning, again, the dietary laws are now gone, but the purpose of the law still remains. We are still to constantly remind ourselves daily that we are saved by grace. That our righteousness is not our own, our own but our righteousness is found in Christ. And our life is hidden in Him. And so when we think about the call to be holy, the call to be holy, guys, it's not just a call for us to obey the law and obey God. It's really a call for us to remember God's grace. That He is the one who makes us holy. He's the one who declares us holy because of His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 to 16. tells us that as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The call to be holy still remains, but it's a call to be holy in the same way Israel was called to be holy. It's a call to be holy because God saved you. God saved you and declared you holy. The big idea for this message is this. Because we have been made holy by the blood of Christ, we must live a holy life by keeping our conduct free from the pollution of sin. We do that by constantly distinguishing ourselves from the world, but we do that by constantly going to God and remembering Christ, remembering what His blood has done for us. We constantly go to Him in repentance, looking for forgiveness, seeking His grace. Turf, do you live a holy life? That is, do you live a life that is distinct from this world? You know, every single day, as we have these daily habits, as these, you know, these laws that we just read deals with our daily habits, it's the same way. We too must glorify God in everything we do, including what we eat or drink. The heart of law, the principle of the law, hasn't changed. Your habits, your hobbies, the way... You study the way you spend your money, even the way you sleep. Do you live in such a way that distinctly marks you as 
a Christian, as a follower of Christ. Or another way to think about this, when you hang out with your non-Christian friends or family members, do you stick out almost like a sore thumb? You're, you're embarrassingly sticking out. Do you stick out that way? Because you should. But remember, that remember that the, the call to be holy is not really meant for the world. Well, it is meant for the world in a sense, but it's not just that. Remember, the call to be holy here is not just you intentionally, you know, trying to be different from others. Right? You're not showing off how different you are. The call to be holy is for you to be reminded that you have been saved by God's electing grace. And so when you read God's word, and when you pray, you think about the cross, you think, when you read the gospel again for the hundredth time, you, the question is this, are you truly thankful, grateful, that you've been saved by his grace? When you do that, when you're reminded that you're saved by God's electing grace, it means that you have experienced the grace and love that is the grace and love of God in, in, in such a unique and distinct way. It's a special love that cannot be explained. You have been chosen by God, not because of anything you have done, but you have chosen by God because God chose to love you. Israel needed that reminder daily. We need that reminder daily. And do something to remind yourself. Write it on a post-it. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Tell yourself every day. Recite yourself when you, before you fall asleep that you are saved by grace through faith alone. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so yeah, the, 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 the dietary laws that we just read in Leviticus 11 it doesn't apply to us practically. But the lessons that we learn from this law still remains the same for us today. Be holy. For the Lord your God is holy. This is not a tall challenge. It's not an unreachable height. What this is, is, a, is our identity. It's our calling. That we are to be God's holy people. And so let us live as God's holy people. Distinct and separate from this world. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us your truths. That reminds us, Lord, that that we belong to you. That, Lord, we belong to you because you have called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And you have looked upon us and said, you are my people. I will be your God. Lord, that relationship that we get to share with God is such a, such a great relationship. And so I pray, Lord, that we remind ourselves Remind ourselves of your grace every single day so that we can live according to the identity that you have given to us. Lord, help us. Help us continue to walk with you. Help us be honest about our weaknesses. Be honest about our sins. Help us constantly come to you seeking your grace, seeking your truth, and really abiding, Lord, in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we will truly walk with you and we will walk as your holy people, distinct in this world. I pray all this in your name. Amen.